I'm B. And I'm B. And, and this, this is Homestead Happenings. Happenings. Where every week we bring you along on our journey to self-sufficiency. And bring you exclusive interviews on all things Homestead from people around the world. So hit subscribe and follow along with us. Let's learn. Let's grow. Let's go. I'm V, and today is something that everybody has been waiting for because we are going to be talking about mushrooms. And when I wanted to talk about this, I knew that I wanted to speak with Wild Wise Botanicals. Um, Mike Snyder is a mushroom educator from the Ozarks, which is where we are. So that is super near and dear to me. Um, they've been busy doing talks. They do um walk-alongs, workshops, all about mushrooms in our region for the past few years. Um, he's been foraging and studying um, fungi for 13 years. That is amazing. Um, he's been cultivating mushrooms for about three years and focusing on outdoor growing methods, which is amazing, especially for people who are living off-grid. And he serves on the board of directors for the Missouri Mycology Society, which is awesome. He's one of their official mushroom identification experts, which is something you don't want to get mixed up. Um, that was something that I was worried about. We have a ton of mushrooms here, but I'm like, what are these? Um, he earned the Harry Thiers Certificate of Mushroom Proficiency, and he's a proud member of the North American Mycology Association Cultivation Committee as well, which is huge. Mike and his wife, Cara, have a small business, Wild Wise Botanical, and they harvest and cultivate mushrooms and herbs and create micro batches of various products from them. Uh, the focus of their business has shifted to education in the last few years, and Mike has been fortunate enough to teach a great deal of people about fungi in that time, which I was fortunate enough to see him speak, and that was awesome. He's passionate about mushrooms. He's an enthusiast who loves nothing more than introducing people to the wild mushrooms of our region and showing people how to cultivate them gourmet and medicinal mushrooms at home, which is a huge thing given our times. Um so without further ado, um, Mike, I know that you're going to be speaking this year as well at the Ozarks Homesteading Expo. Is that correct? That is right. Yes. Looking forward to it. Yeah. So when, what can somebody expect when they come and hear you speak at something like the Expo? That's a good question. So the Expo is a pretty cool place. There are a lot of people that go to that thing and lots of really interesting speakers. So tons of uh, knowledge being spread around at that place. It's two days, uh, which makes it where you have two full days of a ton of stuff to do. Uh, in my talk, since it is a homesteading expo, I try to tie in mushrooms with people who are into homesteading, right? That's why people are there. They want to learn about how to homestead and how to integrate all these different things. And Kind of like you touched on in the intro there, you see a lot of mushrooms, but you don't know what the heck they are. So <laughs> I try to make the focus of my talks uh, fairly basic, but also full of information uh, that I feel is helpful to people who are new so they can kind of figure things out. And like you said, not injure themselves uh, with the mushroom. Yes. And I will say what um, the ones I keep hearing about that I really you know, I wanted to know, like, what is the buzz about these are the morel mushrooms. I hope I'm saying that right. And the chicken of the woods. Those, Those two. Both, uh, yeah, both good, really good mushrooms. And both really uh, very safe and easy to learn edibles, too. 
So they're really good starter mushrooms, and those are probably two of the mushrooms that uh, I probably talk to more people who know those two than uh, any other wild mushroom in our region. So morels are great. They are very highly sought after, sometimes elusive, and uh, everybody loves them that tries them. They're definitely the most commonly eaten wild mushroom in the Midwest. Uh, they're, they're known to grow uh, pretty abundantly in the Midwest compared to some other parts of the country. Uh, so it is hard to kind of get into hunting morels because people are kind of secretive about them. You may have noticed. Yes. Nobody wants, to, <laughs> nobody wants to give up their honey holes. Well, that shows you that this mushroom is very delicious and it's so delicious that people don't want to share. So is that a mushroom that you would have raw like on a salad or is that something you'd want to cook? No, that's a good question, actually. So one of the very main rules of eating wild mushrooms is that you always want to cook them. Uh, there are many fungi that have uh, chemicals or toxins in them that are destroyed by cooking, uh, just like with lots of other foods. So you want to be sure and cook wild mushrooms before eating them. Okay, that's a huge thing to know. <laughs> so, and also, if you, and also another point on that uh, note is that if you do not cook a mushroom and eat it, you know, just a mushroom from the store, you actually are getting very little nutrition from that mushroom because our bodies cannot digest uncooked mushroom material. It's made out of a very tough substance uh, called chitin, and you can only absorb nutrients and possible medicinal compounds from mushrooms after cooking them. So my mom is not crazy. I thought she was crazy because she, you know, I put, I go to the, uh, you know, salad bars and this and that. I put the mushrooms on my salad. My mom was like, you got to stop doing that. You're not even supposed to be eating them like that. You need to cook them. I was like, um, mom, if they're out, then I, then they want me to eat them. I just figure, you know, like vegetables. She was like, I'm telling you. So now she's listening to this episode and she's like, I told you. Hey, you know what? Moms are usually right, I would have to say. <laughs> I know. Yeah, well, so, I, I recommend not eating raw mushrooms, even ones from the store. Yep, you should cook them. Okay, so I did get, so I would, you know, I would take, uh, I got a secret Santa gift, which is, you know, those little kits that uh, grow your own mushrooms in 10 days. Oh, yeah, and great. so I got those. Um, I've been talking about wanting to grow mushrooms. In my mind, I was going to do the shiitake mushrooms on the logs, which we'll talk about here in a minute. But I was gifted this. And so I'm thinking, oh, these are the ones from the store. Uh, so I guess I will be actually just cooking those up and sautéing them in stir fries instead of fresh on my salad. Um, yes. what, are your, what are your thoughts on those kits? Because they have three different kinds so yeah, mushroom grow kits are awesome. I definitely recommend people, if you're interested in cultivating mushrooms uh, at all, that's a really good first step because all of the work is done for you right up to the point of when the mushroom starts to actually grow out of the, the substrate. So pretty easy and it helps you to kind of get an idea of what mushrooms require as far as environmental conditions so they can develop properly. Uh, the biggest thing is probably humidity. You want to have a lot of humidity, and that's why the directions for those kits generally will instruct you to spray or lightly mist uh, the baby mushrooms as they start to grow. Which so mushrooms need humidity, and they also need air. So you you have to have some kind of airflow. You don't want to put them in an enclosed place uh, with no mm. airflow. They won't develop. 
other than if you follow those two uh, rules, the kits really do pretty well. I think I've had good luck with them. Uh, they do sell them, I think, at big box stores, and you can, of course, buy them online from lots of different distributors. Uh, but I do recommend getting them from a local producer so you know that you're getting a strain that performs well in the area you live in. A lot of times if there's a mushroom, uh, you know, a person selling mushrooms at a farmer's market, uh, they generally usually will have kits for sale also. Oh, very neat. So our farmer's market, I hadn't found anybody who was selling mushrooms and oh, yeah. yeah, and people were, you know, talking about them and we finally got um, one gentleman doing microgreens. You know, our area just is just, just coming around to some, to some of these things um, sure. with the exception of the morels. <laughs> the, yeah. Those are like, you know, a whole thing. So as far as the morels go, what, where if you had just got land and you wanted to see if you had them when would you be looking for them and in what type of environment on your land would you look to find them right so morels are somewhat predictable as far as the habitats that they like uh at least for me i, I like to hunt for them in any kind of creek bottom areas so it doesn't have to be a big river or anything it can be a very small creek bottom and when you get into those kind of lower areas that are more moist, you will start finding different types of trees than you find in the higher up areas on the ridges. So the big thing with morels is that they are a mycorrhizal mushroom, or at least thought to be a mycorrhizal mushroom for at least part of their life cycle. And that means that they develop a symbiotic relationship with trees that uh, they exchange nutrients with. So that's really important when you're hunting morels because they're very closely tied to certain types of trees. Uh, different mushrooms that are mycorrhizal prefer different types of trees uh, to form this symbiosis with. So morels in particular in our area, uh, and this can vary in different parts of the world, they seem to like different trees in different uh, parts of the world, but here in Missouri and in the Midwest, we generally look for elm trees or ash trees or cottonwood trees. Uh, and sometimes sycamore trees. So you may, if you know trees at all, you would know that all four of those trees are uh, bottomland hardwood trees. So they're trees that you can find up higher on the ridges and places like that, but generally they're in the creek bottoms. So that's where I always hunt morels, uh, wherever those trees are growing in low areas. And as far as timing, this uh, episode is coming out just in time because it is about to be morel season here in Missouri. And in Southern Missouri, there have already been fines. So this is the perfect time, uh, early spring. Usually I start looking around the 1st of April. And the cool thing about morels and why people have their honey holes is because they are mycorrhizal mushrooms. So they always come back in the same place as long as that environment hasn't been, you know, disturbed with the trees all cut down or something like that. So our land, um, we have a lot of mushrooms, but not any of the, you know, we don't have any of the, we'll call them cool mushrooms. <laughs> you know, the, 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 the main, uh, mushrooms that people keep talking about on, you know, our local homesteading groups or things like that. Our land was previously logged. Um, and so, and then now what came back is just a ton of the white oak trees 
right? Um, Do you have any creek, uh, creek bottom areas or uh, washes that are on like more of a hillside type thing? So our whole land slopes south. Yeah, our whole land slopes south to north, and we have a wet weather that goes through. And so I just keep peeking, keep peeking, but I found quite a few. Want, uh, the stuff that's growing on our oak trees looks like turkey tail. It probably is. And um, I left it alone. I was waiting until after this episode. <laughs> I, was, I left everything alone. And then we've got some that I definitely, um, I didn't identify them or anything, but I know that they're probably not okay okay and they're red <laughs> okay there's I'm, a lot of red mushrooms so yeah yeah but i'm if like you, if you learn how to identify elm and ash trees and you go look in that wet weather creek area then it is possible that you could find some morels if you see those trees there yes i unfortunately we don't have any other trees that's what's upsetting is oh, all those trees okay yeah um we do have uh like two cedar trees i mean it it is this this uh area they just came in and they just they just wiped it out and once those oaks took over it just went crazy um and so we're adding situation yeah we're adding in things as as we go um and then when i do the designs for uh people doing their permaculture designs always um adding a spot where they can try to cultivate their mushrooms or create that that habitat where they can plant in those trees and do all those things so we're really trying to push that when i was doing my um studies on permaculture they really push push for that and so i was excited to see that more and more people are like mushrooms 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 because it i hadn't heard about about it a lot until we finally, you know, got to Missouri. Um, mushrooms fit in really well with any kind of permaculture design or ideals. Yes. Um, so if your property is predominantly oak trees and probably some hickories in the mix, I would assume then you're in luck. You can't find morels in those kind of trees very often. It, it's not impossible, but it isn't likely. But lots of other mushrooms like oak trees, especially mycorrhizal mushrooms like chanterelles and black trumpets, uh, lots of different boletes and russulas and amanitas, so all kinds of different mushrooms love oak trees. And here in the Ozarks, we have an abundance of mycorrhizal mushrooms that like oak trees. Yes, and we do have a lot of different kinds of mushrooms out there. Um, and... That then that brings me to whilst perusing the website, um, I know you do guided hikes. So is that something where you have, you know, you're taking people or can people hire you to walk their land with them to identify? It's generally meant for a landowner to commission me to come to their property and identify the mushrooms that are growing there. And sometimes I'll do other things. Even I've held classes right in people's living rooms with their friends and family they invited. Um, I've done a few different uh, cultivation workshops at people's homes. So we can kind of mix it up even. So that's yeah, exciting. That's really coming to someone else's place. We do, we, uh, we do intend on having events here at our place. And uh, we just haven't done that yet. Yeah, I wondered if being in 
our area and having the um, national forest and all that here, I wondered if you did any type of uh, guided hiking there. But for, there's a lot of people who listen to this podcast that are in the Missouri area, especially in this southern, you know, this Ozark region. So I will include the website and all these details in the description box of this episode. So be sure you could go in there. You'll be able to contact them via their Facebook, Instagram, or website if you would like to have them come out and see what, what you've got. Help you with your mushrooms and figuring out what you can find and use and do. Uh, because I don't know of anyone else doing that in the area. And we do have so many... Uh, different kinds of mushrooms that would be definitely something to do i will be doing it personally <laughs> so yeah great it's it's been a big success uh i've really had some some really great uh fun at people's places showing them all the different mushrooms uh we did have kind of a dry end of the year last year so that that put a damper on some of it but it was still a lot of fun and it's a really great opportunity for people to gain a lot of information about right outside their door, you know, and things that they can use for years to come because mushrooms uh, generally stick around. If you find some, you'll find some more the next year and the next year. Yeah, and we have so many trees decaying uh, because, again, it was logged and then they've been laying there. And so they're breaking down and breaking down. So we have more and more and more and more that just keep popping up, which is good news for me. You know, as, for as far as permaculture goes, I mean, my my soil... Uh, has been improving slowly over these these years, so that's been nice. Um, oh yeah, you can't beat big rotten logs for soil uh, building. No, would these oak trees be a tree that you could use to um, cultivate the shiitake logs? Oh, absolutely. Yep, shiitakes love oak, and actually, shiitake means oak mushroom. Uh, the s h i i part of the word. Uh, she is the name of a type of oak tree that grows in, uh, I believe, China. So maybe and my... <laughs> and that's where that mushroom uh, is native to, and it has been cultivated for a really long time now. And so all the ones that people grow on logs are that species that's native to uh, China and Japan. Well, that's but neat to know. Oaks. Yeah, red oaks, all of the red oaks, they love all of those, and you can grow them on white oak as well. Red oak is preferred, but white oak works works also. Well, so maybe all these oak trees <laughs> will serve me really well other than being oh, yeah. fertilizer. So if I wanted to, um, you know, do this, especially with, I mean, I have, I go and visit tons of friends in the area, especially they all have equally as many oak trees as I do. Um, right. So... Is, are you able to discuss the process of if somebody wanted to, and I actually think the word is to inoculate the logs. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Inoculate. Okay. Right. See, I remember that from your talk. Uh, so <laughs> if somebody wanted to do that, what, where would, what would be their starting point? So the first thing to do would be to make sure that you have access to wood. And like you said, if people own a few acres in our area, they generally have an abundance of oak trees. So you would start by getting your logs and you wanna cut the trees about a week before you're going to inoculate them. This just helps to let some of the trees natural defense, defenses kind of die down a little bit before you put, put the mushroom into the logs. 
Um, so you don't want to go much over a week though, because you don't want the logs to dry out. So that's kind of the biggest threat actually in mush in shiitake log production, especially in the beginning is the logs drying out. So you get your logs, you let them sit for about a week. Uh, and then there's a couple of different ways that you can do the next step. But the basic idea is to drill a series of holes into the logs and you fill the holes with a material that we call spawn. And spawn is basically a nutritive material, either grain or in the case of shiitake log production, it would be sawdust. And you purchase this, it, it needs to be made in a sterile uh, facility. So it's not really for a beginner to produce on their own, although it can be done your, yourself. So you buy spawn and it's basically sawdust that is already colonized by a fungus. So the mushrooms that we find in the woods and that we grow on shiitake logs, mushrooms are kind of like the fruit of the organism that is the fun fungus. And the fungus body is actually composed of tiny white thread-like uh, material called hypi, and they aggregate into uh, larger pieces of the white wispy material called mycelium. And so this mycelium spreads through a substrate and when it gains enough nutrients from decomposing the substrate, it will create a mushroom. And a mushroom is solely a spore producing apparatus. It is meant to just drop spores into the air or whatever various way of, of getting rid of its spores that mushroom has adapted. And the spores go off and land somewhere. And if it's somewhere hospitable to that species, then the spores will germinate and they germinate into those tiny little strands, which will go around basically melting cellulose until they, you know, create a giant network and can make mushrooms. That is so what you're doing. So what you're doing when you add this sawdust, it already has that wispy filamentous material that we call mycelium, which again is the body of a fungus. So you're actually putting tiny bits of this fungus into each of the holes that you drill. And what will happen is the mycelium that is on that sawdust will leap off. I say leap because it's a very active process. Uh, if you looked at it under a microscope, you can see it happening. It's pretty cool. So the mycelium goes from the sawdust, the spawn that you injected into the hole, into the log, and you drill a series of holes in a pattern. So they will all kind of spread through the log and meet in the middle of all the holes, basically. Once the entire log has been colonized by the mycelium, that's when you get mushrooms. So after you drill the holes and fill them with the spawn, uh, the third step is basically covering the spawn in the holes so it doesn't dry out. And so competing microorganisms don't get in there and, uh, you know, battle it out with your shiitake spawn. You don't want that. Uh, and also sometimes insects like to eat the spawn. So you need to cover it up. And the way we do that is with melted wax. So you just melt some cheese wax, or you can use beeswax if you have access to, uh, to that. And you cover all the holes that you drilled and filled, and then you let the log sit for several months. <laughs> and when it's sitting, that process is called the spawn run. And that is when that mycelium has spread out of that sawdust spawn and is working its way through the log. And that takes, if you inoculate logs in the spring, which is what I recommend, around this time is fine, a little earlier than this is ideal, um, then you will generally get some mushrooms on your shiitake logs by the, the following fall. So this fall you would get some, but the bigger flushes that you could expect would come the following spring. So it can be six months to a year before you see a mushroom. But the good news is that after all that work and waiting, 
the mushroom log, depending on how thick it is, uh, and sometimes what species, will actually fruit mushrooms for a number of years. So a big thick log will fruit for five plus years, and uh, you know, six inch thick log or, or something like that will fruit for a, at least three or four years, depending on your management uh, processes. So that's basically it. If you have oak trees and a chainsaw and a couple of special tools, you can grow a large amount of mushrooms. Well, that's exciting. Um, where would, uh, if somebody was doing this, they're ready, they're gung-ho, where on their property would be the best place to store these logs for the long term? Yes, that is very important to consider, actually. You want to store your logs in an area that is sheltered from wind and sheltered from sunlight. Those are the two biggest enemies of shiitake logs and most other mushroom growing ventures. What happens is if your logs are exposed to wind constantly, like especially this time of year, then they will dry out very quickly. If the logs get too dry, then the mycelium is unable to uh, go through its biological processes and consume the wood and it will eventually die. It won't spread through the log, it just won't be able to do it. Same thing with sunlight. Uh, direct sunlight on shiitake logs, especially newly inoculated ones, is the very worst thing that you could do because it's quick to dry a log out. It doesn't take long. Uh, so you want to find a shelter place. Where I have my uh, mushroom growing area is I had an area with five or six good-sized cedar trees that were kind of close together, and so I just sawed off the lower limbs where I could stand up under them and that's where I keep all my uh, mushroom logs and totems and all the other different things I'm doing. So that's a good recommendation and that's because you'll get shade in the winter and the summer all through the year and then also you usually have you know deciduous trees all around the cedars so you'll get the shade from those in the summer as well. And then the cedars are also great at uh, being a natural windbreak. So if you don't have a handy uh, copes of evergreen trees. You could use the north side of a building up as close to the building as possible. Uh, that works really well if you're just doing, you know, 10 logs or something like that, or even one or two, because on the north side of your house, of course, you won't have as much sunlight falling there, if any, if it's right up against the house. Uh, and then also the building is uh, protecting it from wind. So any of those would work. Some people will put them under their deck. Some people will put them in the garden, maybe in a shady corner or next to a garden shed or something like that. So there's lots of lots of uh, options. You just want to make sure and take care of direct sunlight is a no-no and lots of wind. Yes, and it is super windy here, and then we're down in a valley. <laughs> so, um, yeah. yeah, so everything that is wind sensitive or anything we have to protect it from the west um or just doesn't even stand a chance all right so well after after a few months after the spawn run has has been pretty strong then uh you don't have to worry about the wind quite as much and also if you spray the logs if you keep them within reach of a garden hose then the threat is much less because you can keep spraying them down with the hose once a week if it doesn't rain Yes, which and in our area, it's always raining. <laughs> well, this time of year it seems that way. Yes, um, maybe not in August though. <laughs> no, and I we'll probably get a ten to twelve week drought at this point because the every year just keeps increasing by a week or two. 
Um, so once you have that and then you get your mushrooms and you're all excited, then how would you harvest them to not damage it? Is it like asparagus where you need to leave some or how does that work? I see what you're asking, right? No, it doesn't matter. So since the body of the fungus is the mycelial structure that I described in the log, uh, as long as that isn't disturbed or chopped out of the log in some way, then the fungus is still there. So when you harvest a mushroom, you just simply grab it and twist the whole thing off. Uh, the mushrooms, at least for the first year, generally grow from the holes that you drilled. That's where the mushrooms will grow from, the shiitakes. Uh, you have a couple of options for um, how you can make your mushrooms grow. So shiitake are unique in the mushroom cultivation world in that you can easily plan when they will fruit uh, when growing them on logs. And you do that by, well, first, if you just leave your shiitake logs, you know, laying in the, out in the woods, like I said, under some cedars or against a building, uh, they will fruit usually in the spring and in the fall, you'll get two distinct fruitings because they like that kind of shift in the weather and uh, temperature change, and also the moisture that comes with those seasons. So you can do that, but you can also do what we call shocking the logs. And that is simply soaking the log in cold water for 24 hours. And then you take the log out of the water and set it against a tree or on a rack or something, and it will start to fruit mushrooms in just a day or two so you can control when the mushrooms come out of the log. Uh, the only drawback to doing that is that you're, if you keep, uh, you have to wait six to eight weeks between these force fruitings or shock, shocking the logs to uh, make them make more mushrooms. But if you do it every six to eight weeks, your log will not last as many years as I described previously. Uh, there's right. only a finite amount of mushrooms that you can get from the log under the best conditions. But it's a really great way if you're doing a lot of logs, then that doesn't really matter. <laughs> if you keep doing yeah. it year, you end up with a whole bunch of logs and you can just soak them anytime you want and get big old flushes of mushrooms. And each log will produce a pound of mushrooms uh, or even more under really good conditions. That's awesome because, I mean, you know, there's somebody who, you know, like us who were working on turning everything over you know, we want the whole thing to be a food forest, all these things. And we've got to get some, a lot of these oaks out of here. Then you get a lot of logs. And so yeah. I guess it really just depends on how much of that, um, you know, the medium that you can afford, basically. Right. Yeah, basically. Uh, it's not very expensive to cultivate shiitakes. As long as you have access to the logs, that would be the biggest expense. If you didn't, you know, you would have to pay for someone to cut the wood and bring it to you, uh, which isn't really expensive, but it would be more expensive than the rest of the process. Uh, shiitakes are really great to have on hand for any kind of survival situation. Uh, you know, when we're working with permaculture ideas and homesteading, we're often thinking of, you know, trying to be prepared for some kind of, you know, negative outcome that could happen. There are all kinds of things that could go on, right? Mm -hmm. So mushroom, mushrooms fit into that excellently, especially outdoor cultivated mushrooms that do not rely on machinery to keep them going, like shiitake logs or totems or uh, other ways to grow oyster mushrooms outdoors. So mushrooms are extremely healthy foods. <clears throat> and if you are in a situation where you're trying to get as much nutrition from your own property as possible, mushrooms can be a boon. <clears throat> 
they're high in, in a lot of different vitamins and minerals. They have complete protein, very small amounts of some of the amino acids. So you wouldn't want it to be your only protein, but if it were your only protein, you would survive. And they're also full of all kinds of novel ingredients, uh, chemicals that are medicinal in different ways. So, and, and another great thing about mushrooms, as far as homesteading or uh, survival aspect is they preserve really excellently. Uh, especially shiitakes. So if you shock, you know, 10 logs and you get 10 pounds of mushrooms, you can just dehydrate them all and save them for a pretty long time if you store them correctly. Uh, and deep rehydrated uh, shiitakes are very tasty and almost as good as fresh. And would that go for things like the chicken of the woods even? You know, you could dehydrate that down and then... Have you... You, you can do that mushroom that way. I don't recommend it. It actually doesn't respond very well to rehydration, but you can also, anytime you have an excess of a wild mushroom or cultivated mushroom, you can dehydrate them and grind them into a powder and use that to thicken soups or uh, add to roasted meats or vegetables. Really excellent for that. You can add salt and other seasonings to make like a seasoned salt, and you can get all kinds of amazing flavors because every mushroom tastes a little bit different. So I have like an arsenal of mushroom powders, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so let's say somebody is like my husband who swears he doesn't like mushrooms, and I told him, but... He just doesn't like the mushrooms that he has had so far. Right. So I'm like, are mushrooms similar to... You know, like, I'll eat a homegrown tomato, but I don't eat tomatoes from the store. So if I go somewhere, I'm like, no tomato, because it just it just tastes like sadness. So, yeah. you know, is it similar to that in where homegrown is different than just the mushroom that you're getting all canned and slimy on your pizza? Oh, certainly, yes. No comparison. Yep, a wild mushroom uh, that you prepare correctly and... And try, say, for instance, a chanterelle or a morel, you're not going to find anything that even resembles that in the grocery store. Even if you grow your own shiitakes and compare them to ones that you would buy in the grocery store, there's no comparison. When, when you grow mushrooms on a really dense substrate, like a log, the mushrooms themselves have more food and they have a stronger mycelial network and they grow big, dense mushrooms. So when you buy shiitakes in the store, they often have thin stems. They're kind of flattened out because they were probably left too long on the, on the sawdust they were growing on. So when you do a shiitake log, they have thick, robust stems, generally uh, thick, meaty caps, and their flavor is noticeably better. <clears throat> so, so yeah, store-bought store is never as good, right? Right. Uh, so I told him, I said, I think you will like it. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, for sure give them a shot especially wild <laughs> mushrooms because they all have there's just such a wide variety of textures uh and flavors and it's just amazing every mushroom is a little bit different some of them are very different so what is your um favorite mushroom to cook so if you're like oh i want to make a stir fry or I want to make this like what is your go-to mushroom so my go-to mushroom for something like that where I'm just like okay I need this for for you know my weekly meal list would be shiitakes just because they're so versatile they're not slimy at all they're really firm textured very flavorful and 
like I said, versatile, so you can do all kinds of different stuff with them. So that's kind of the go-to mushroom, but I enjoy eating wild mushrooms more just because they're more ephemeral and fleeting. You know, you don't get them all the time. So it's always right. exciting when it's morel season, you know, and you have this two or three week window where you have to go out every single day and find all the morels you can so you can eat them all, you know. <laughs> and so it's kind of fun. And I get that way with a whole bunch of different mushrooms. So um, I really enjoy morels. I enjoy uh, gyromitra species. They're very tasty. I enjoy chanterelles and black trumpets. I would say those are possibly my favorite wild mushrooms to cook with uh, just because their flavor is so unique and earthy and delicious. And then there's also the hen of the woods or maitake that comes uh, later in the fall. And I think that might be my very favorite wild mushroom overall because it's you find one of these things and they weigh 10 pounds and you know, some of them weigh over 50 pounds that I've seen pictures of. I haven't found them that big, but they're always large. So you get a whole bunch of food with just one find. Uh, they preserve well. They're delicious, extremely uh, strong umami flavor. So that's the one I like the most, Hint of the Woods. It's called maitake, which uh, in, I believe, Japanese means dancing mushroom. And they don't know if that means the mushroom has kind of a frilly look to it, like a hen that's ruffled its feathers. That's why it's called the hen of the woods. So they don't know if maitake, the dancing mushroom, comes from the mushroom kind of looks like it's dancing maybe with its skirts, uh, you know, twirling around. Or does it mean when you find one, you do a dance because you're so happy? Huh. Very interesting. I, I will include, for everybody listening, in the Facebook group, Homestead Happenings with BB Podcast, I will include pictures of the mushrooms that we've been talking about along with all of their websites and all of that information so that you can peek at all these things. Uh, but I encourage everyone to, to do your own research cause it is, it's very fascinating. Um, so one mushroom that a lot of people were saying, Hey, talk about this, talk about this was the lion's mane. Right. So I don't know if you have any key things no one had any questions necessarily specifically. It was just like they wanted to know more. They want to know about lion's mane. Well, I don't blame them. It's a fascinating mushroom. Uh, from everything about it is fascinating. The way it looks, uh, all the different things you can do with it culinarily, and also its medicinal properties uh, that are really exciting. We've been learning a lot about recently. So lion's mane are great. You can find them in the wild here in the Midwest. They like to grow on oak trees in our area. Um, there actually are a few species of the same genus, which are, uh, is called heresium. And there are three heresiums in Missouri. They're all equally delicious. Um, some of them are harder to find than others. But if you can't find a lion's mane in the woods, which isn't extremely easy, they're not a rare mushroom, but they're not the most common of mushrooms either. You are in luck, though, because you can easily cultivate lion's mane, uh, surprisingly easily. And the grow kits that you were talking about at the beginning of our talk, uh, you can find lion's mane grow kits that are the very easiest way to get that mushroom into your hands. Uh, you buy these blocks, you cut a slit in the bag, and you set it on your kitchen counter and wait for the lion's mane to grow out. <laughs> it takes about a week, and you have this big, toothy, frilly, pom-pom-looking thing. Uh, that is a fungus. It's a mushroom. So lion's mane have all kinds of unique properties. In the kitchen, they're often used. So you can, they're not really, you don't want to think of them as you think of most mushrooms. They're very unmushroom like when it comes to cooking them, in my opinion. 
they don't have a, the same flavor as any other mushroom. They have their own unique uh, flavor profile going on and their own texture that is very different too. So a lot of people love this mushroom as a substitute for seafood. So it has a surprisingly, a surprisingly spot on texture uh, to lobster meat or crab meat. So you can basically use it as a substitute in any recipe that you would use those items in, which is cool for us here in the Midwest because we don't have access to those foods in a, you know, freshly like you would closer to the coast. Well, or you can do crab salad, you can do crab cakes, you can do lobster rolls. um, And I'm sure I'm forgetting a bunch of great ones. Yeah. Or um, I'm allergic to shellfish, seafood, all that. Um, oh, yeah. yeah, and I'm glad, you, I'm glad you said that. I have heard that from so many people, and I, I love introducing this mushroom to folks that have that allergy because I know that allergies to food can be a pain in the neck. So you're missing, and also when it's something tasty like that, you're really missing out. So I definitely recommend that you try some lion's mane, make you some crab cakes, make you some crab salad, and you're gonna fall in love. Very easy to prepare. Uh, one of the keys to this mushroom is to do what's called a dry saute. And this goes for a lot of mushrooms that have a really high water content. You want to, uh, I use cast iron, so I will just heat my cast iron skillet up, throw in the mushroom that I pull apart, I shred it all apart, and I cook it with no oil or butter until it starts to release uh, the water that is locked inside the mushroom. And all this water will kind of fill your pan. And once you cook the mushrooms till that water has boiled away, then you add your fat, uh, you know, butter or, or oil or whatever you're using and uh, give them a couple more minutes till they dry, until they brown up. And that's the best way to cook them before you use them for all kinds of different things. Some recipes call for boiling them instead of doing what I just described. Like if you're gonna make a cold crab salad, for instance, you would uh, boil, you would tear the mushroom apart, boil it, and then squeeze all the water out of it after it cools and then use that as crab meat. It's really mm. spot on and pretty amazing. And if you put like some Old Bay in the recipe or whatever, it you can't even tell it isn't seafood it's amazing very interesting it also makes excellent mushroom jerky with a unique texture that is unlike any other mushroom jerky that i've made we've used at least 10 different mushrooms for mushroom jerky and the heresiums are my favorite so far Uh, also lion's mane has the reason most people are probably asking is for uh it's it's notoriety in the world of medicinal mushrooms recently so lion's mane have been found to contain uh, constituents that have been shown to have activity against nerve damage and helping to rebuild uh, nerve damage. So this can be either uh, dementia, Alzheimer's type things that are related to nerves in your brain. And also I've heard uh, some people have really good success with using it to counteract uh, nerve damage from say an automobile accident or something like that, where you you know, have an injury in your nerves and you have a lot of pain from it. So a lot of people are, are getting relief in that way. So I'm not a doctor and, you know, I don't, I don't diagnose right. people's conditions, but I do, I do tell people if you have these conditions, you should try this mushroom and it could help you. Uh, it's not going to hurt you. That's for sure. Very interesting. Um, I am all about uh, medicinal, anything that you can have. And, um, I've got all kinds of, you know, I'm trying to make plans and what we want to have here. Um, 
we're trying to do something very cool with our property, very unique um, in that we've been, for a long time I've been studying how they do things um, in their permaculture food forests in New Zealand, Australia, um, you know, some even over in Scotland, the way that they're kind of, their whole property is essentially a food forest. I mean, that's basically it. And they just like exist within that. Um, and so that's what we're kind of going for. And it is not as common in the U S. And so knowing these things, um, about mushrooms and what you can do. And I mean, mushroom jerky, never heard of that, uh, in my life until four seconds ago, you know, so (laughs) all, all of these things that can be done, um, you know, people on a small property just just think, um, you know, when people are like, oh, I, you know, I can't raise uh, meat chickens. No, it's not meat, but you could still, you know, substitute in um, that mushroom or, oh, you know, I, I want seafood, but I can't afford it. And then you can, you know, sub this in. And I mean, there's just so many things that you can do and they take up less space with less, um, input in that sense. Um, so just fascinating. Um, I really hope that more people do just so much more research on, on mushrooms. I think that that is definitely on the way, uh, in the mycology community, uh, it's being called the shroom boom that is happening right now. And, there's definitely uh, been an increase in interest in all things mushroom in the last five to ten, even 10 years. But those of us who have been studying and hunting mushrooms for a pretty good amount of time, it's funny to us because, uh, you know, we used to be the mushroom guy and there weren't any other mushroom guys for a long, long ways. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I had to, you know, drag my buddies into the woods and show them the mushrooms and they'd be like, oh man, here goes Mike on the mushroom thing again. Oh, geez. <laughs> but now, you know, people pay me to come and show them the mushrooms. So the shroom boom has been very beneficial to me and very unexpected, actually. You know, I never thought I would be talking to large crowds about mushrooms. That's for sure. I know. Well, I know you're giving talks and guided tours, and you're on a podcast and all kinds of stuff. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so, we've been we've been really ramping things up, uh, making some really good partnerships with folks, and just trying to spread the spores. Yeah, that's fantastic, and that'll just lead me right into. Um, I was perusing the site after your last talk, um, and so I thought maybe you could talk for just a minute on these extracts that you guys have on your, on your site. Um, because I, I know a lot of people are like mushroom extract. What do you mean? What are you using that for? So I'd love if you talk about that. Sure. Mushroom extracts are an excellent way to get mushrooms into your body on a daily basis, which is recommended if you want to get, uh, benefits medicinally from mushrooms or functionally as we usually call it. It's very important to take them regularly every day and throughout the day uh, in kind of smaller amounts, but larger amounts are good too. So we don't really sell many extracts anymore because I realized that it took a lot of work to make those and I had to charge a lot of money to make it worthwhile. But I also realized that I could easily teach people to do it themselves and then they would really see the power of mushrooms because you can make a large amount of medicine for very low financial input, 
uh, instead of buying, you know, a $25 bottle of tincture that lasts less than a month, you can make a gallon of tincture for that same amount, just a little more money than that. Uh, and of course that will last you months. So we've been doing a lot of education on how to make extracts and the ones I recommend, uh, there's basically two types of extracts that I usually recommend to people, especially people who are new to mushrooms. Um, so there's a liquid extract and you can do a double or triple extract. And this basically is making separate extracts using different solvents to extract the different things from uh, the mushroom. So some, some of the compounds that are desirable in fungi to put into an extract are alcohol soluble or some other solvent. So you basically have to do an alcohol uh, extract and then mix it with a water extract to make your final product. So the way you do that is you start with a mushroom, usually a dried mushroom, but you can use fresh as well if you have them. And first you want to do your alcohol extraction. So if people have made a plant tincture, this is basically the same thing, except you don't use 100 proof vodka or, or vodka, you use Everclear basically, really high proof alcohol. Uh, the reason for that is because we're going to be mixing it with a water extract and we don't want to end up with an extract that's too low of an alcohol percentage. So we want to keep the alcohol percentage above 25% or so uh, at the lowest to keep it shelf stable. So our extracts will last a long time without having to refrigerate them. So you basically uh, macerate the mushroom. You, you get your dried mushroom. We usually put it in a, a Vitamix, you know, a really strong blender and grind it into powder or almost powder. Some mushrooms are pretty tough and hard to grind up. If you don't, if you don't have the ability to do that, just chop it up as small as you can get it. Uh, put it in a quart jar or whatever size, you know, whatever amount you're trying to make. And I usually just fill the quart jar about three quarters full with dried mushroom, uh, either ground or not. And then I cover it with, I fill the jar basically with uh, the high proof alcohol. And then this extract needs to go for a pretty good amount of time, just like if you're doing a plant tincture. So you'll let this sit in the jar for about six weeks. Uh, you'll want to shake it every once in a while to uh, daily, if possible, to get the, the mushroom mixed with the uh, alcohol really well. And after that six weeks, you're going to strain the alcohol off and set it aside. And then you're going to take that same uh, mushroom material that you made the alcohol extract with, and you're going to put it in a pot. <clears throat> you can also use a crock pot for this step if you prefer, but I like to do it on the stovetop. And you're basically going to make a hot water extract, which is similar to a decoction if people are familiar with plant medicine and making a decoction from plant roots. So you're basically going to put water in the pot with the mushroom. You want to start with uh, two to three times the amount of water that you want to end up with, uh, depending on how how long you want to cook it. I usually just do two uh, times. So if I want to end up with a quart of water to mix with my quart of alcohol, then I will uh, start with two quarts of water. And you basically get the mushroom simmering, uh, turn the heat way down and let it simmer until half of that water has evaporated off. And you can just ballpark it, you know, but you want half of the water to be gone. And what that does is it makes a, a really nice dark mushroom hot water extract. Um, when you do the mm. alcohol extract, you are getting uh, items like terpenes uh, and things like acids and things like that into the extract. When you do the hot water extract, you are extracting what are called beta glucans uh, into the extract. And these are the immunomodulating parts of mushrooms, which are in every mushroom. 
and they're very beneficial to health if taken regularly. They help modulate your immune system. They've been shown to help modulate your immune system and do all kinds of other cool stuff. So once you have your hot water extract reduced by half, you will strain the water out uh, and then you will mix the water and alcohol to whatever percent alcohol you want. If you do half and half, you'll end up with a 50% alcohol extract, which is pretty high and it will be boozy when you <laughs> put drink it in some juice or whatever. <laughs> we usually cut it down to two parts water extract and one part alcohol. So you have 33% alcohol in the end. And that seems to be more tolerable. Uh, you could go lower than that if you want to. So you basically just combine those two extracts to the alcohol percentage that you want. And that's your extract, a shelf-stable uh, extract that has <clears throat> all kinds of mushroom goodies in it. The benefits of a liquid extract, or the, the best things about them, is that they're very portable. You just put them in a tincture bottle, and you can take it wherever you go. So you can make sure and you know put it in your coffee or whatever it is. Um, also they're inexpensive to make the process. I just described the only cost that you have is the mushroom. If you buy it, if you forage it, that cost is zero. Uh, so basically you're buying a big jug of Everclear, which is cheap, like most alcohol. Yeah. The... So you have that extract. You can take it three or four times a day, a couple of dropper fools. I usually just, uh, squirt it into a coffee cup and add a little bit of water and just drink it fast. I do that several times a day. Um, and that works out really nicely. The drawbacks to liquid extracts is that they don't contain all the good stuff that was in the mushroom. Um, a lot of good things, including fiber. Fiber is the highest, or mushrooms are the highest fiber food. And everyone is low in fiber, and it's definitely something we want in our diet. So you throw all that away when you throw away your mushroom. Also, the extraction processes only get a percentage of the different constituents out. They don't get them all. Uh, most liquid tinctures, even the very best ones, are probably 20% of the available beta glucans in the mushroom that you used. So what we really like to do, and we can, we do both, we have liquid extracts that we take regularly, and then we also do a powdered mushroom extract. So this isn't just dehydrating a mushroom and grinding it into powder, and then that's your extract. Uh, Sometimes if you buy capsules of mushroom powder, uh, you know, at the, at the grocery store or Walmart or whatever, then you're probably just getting dehydrated mushrooms ground into powder. The crazy thing about that is that you're getting nothing from the, that powder if it isn't cooked. You have to cook mushrooms to get anything good out of them like I uh, touched on earlier in the talk. So what you start with is cooking your mushrooms. And you can do this process with all different kinds of medicinal mushrooms. And we like to make our powdered mushroom extracts using several different types of mushrooms at a time. Mushrooms have a synergistic effect, which means if you take two mushrooms, you get three times the benefit. Uh, they help to uh, enhance each other's effects. So we usually throw in things like reishi, chaga, turkey tail, shiitake, lion's mane, and we'll get all those and we put them in our Instapot. Uh, if you don't have an Instapot, you can also boil them in a big pot. But Instapot makes it really fast and it really breaks down those really tough mushrooms like reishi and chaga that are almost like a piece of wood when you start with them. You want to cut the mushrooms into as small pieces as you can. Uh, put them in your Instapot, cover them with water, and you will pressure cook them for about a half hour for the tougher mushrooms. If you're using just lion's mane and shiitake and oysters or whatever, you know, some of the, the more fragile type mushrooms, then you can do 15 minutes in the Instapot. 30 minutes is usually about right. If you have a lot of chaga in there or uh, maybe reishi that's really, really tough, you might want to go 45 minutes on the pressure cook. 
course, if you're not doing a pressure cooker, you want to really boil the heck out of them for a long time, <laughs> several hours. So Instapot comes in handy when making this. <clears throat> okay, so you have your cooked mushrooms. What you want to do is pour the cooked mushrooms and the water that they cooked in into a really tough blender because the mushrooms will still be pretty tough even after uh, doing this boiling process. And you basically blend them into a slurry type mixture. It looks pretty gross, kind of like a weird mushroom milkshake, but uh, you take that mixture and you can do two things. If you have a dehydrator with uh, uh, you know air flowing in it and you have like uh, fruit leather trays, that works really, really well. That's what we do. Oh, so you yeah. just take that slurry and pour it on fruit leather trays, you know, in a thin layer and dehydrate those. And it takes, we usually do it overnight. We'll do this in the evening and then we'll let them dehydrate overnight. It can take 12 hours, sometimes a little more, just depending on how much slurry you fit on your thing. If you don't have a dehydrator or fruit roll up uh, fruit trays, then you can also do uh, dehydrate the slurry in an oven on a cookie sheet. You'll want to use like some parchment paper or something like that to keep it from sticking. And then uh, you can just bake it on the very lowest temperature. And if your oven doesn't go very low, like if it only goes down to 210 or something like that, you want to leave the door open. So a dehydrator is the way to go if you want to do this. So we make this, uh, once, once you dehydrate, you end up with a crispy brown wafer that is basically that entire mushroom that has been extracted through the process. And you have everything that is good in the mushroom is in that powder. So you take those wafers, grind them into powder in a good blender. And then what you're left with is a really fine powder that has 100% of all the good stuff from those mushrooms. You didn't throw any of it away. And you can add that to soups or sauces as a thickening agent, not a really strong one, but it's a great way to get it into your food. Or you can, some people add it to smoothies, things like that. Um, you can also use it as a seasoning if you add salt to it and do that. Uh, I like to drink it as a hot beverage. So in the morning, I'll take a teaspoon of that stuff, put it in my coffee cup and pour boiling water over it just like it's tea and uh, stir it around really good and drink it down. It's pretty tasty too. Kind of mushroomy taste, uh, really earthy tasting. So like I said, if you do that every single day, you're getting all those good compounds into your body every day. And eventually you will almost surely see uh, positive effects from it. Surely. Uh, it's when people are on this journey and they're taking in more mushrooms and more, more medicinal herbs and cooking with real food and all these things, it's inevitable to it see. Is. I mean, there just is not a way. I don't know a single person who cannot see any type of, of difference. I think it's just, it's crazy. Uh, it's probably, it's good. Whether, you know, the shroom boom or whatever it is uh, i'm glad that it's happening before it was you know quote unquote too late um yeah. so that was good so now we know about about that and i'm glad that you mentioned that because i i know a lot of people who are dehydrating their mushrooms but they're not cooking them first right so you know now we know which i haven't done it yet so now you just saved me from ever messing it up uh <laughs> so if you're not doing the extracts are you are you doing the oils and the salves still or? Yeah, sure. We, we love making things from plants. Also, we grow a lot of different medicinal herbs uh, and we also wild harvest them to make uh, salves and oils and different extracts. Those things that we make are, are fairly limited because uh, we only make them from 
generally from things that we harvest uh, ourselves instead of, you know, buying a big bag off of Mm -hmm. Amazon or whatever. So they're very seasonal and we try to make as much as we can when we do the harvest. And then after that, they're usually gone. So and uh, we we don't sell a lot of stuff through our website uh, and things like that. That's kind of not what we're trying to do. We want to have it be a little more exclusive maybe just because we really put a lot of thought and love into it. We use the very best stuff and we think we turn out a really nice product. So generally we just bring our, our offerings to uh, events that we're attending basically. Are there other events um, that are similar to the Ozarks Homesteading Expo that you'll be at this year? Oh my gosh. My calendar is (laughs) so full for the next several months. So I have a whole lot of stuff going on. Um, We've been working with Rachel West of Eating the Ozarks, and oh, I'm yeah. sure that you are familiar with Rachel. She she is also a Ozark Homesteading Expo veteran, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so we've been doing lots of cool stuff with her. We are getting ready to be certified foragers through her and Bo Brown's program they're doing, which is really cool. Um, and then I'm actually one of the instructors for Eating the Ozarks now, so that's been really neat. We've done several mushroom workshops already, and we're planning lots and lots more. So that's been a really cool opportunity to get more and more people uh, informed about fungi. Yeah. Let's see. I'm also going to be speaking at the Baker Creek Spring Planting Festival. So that's a really big one. I'm really excited wow. about that. Wow. Yeah. yeah and that's. Presenting, uh, be presenting about growing mushrooms and how to integrate them into your gardening routine. So that'll be fun. Well, that'll be huge. And that's. Is that one in May? Is I think there's one in April, one in May. It is in May, I believe. Yeah, because they've got two. So they have the Spring Planting Festival. They've got the Tulip Festival. Right. This is the Spring Planting one. I think it's the first weekend of May. I'm not super sure. I don't have the date in front of me. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think it's... it's a mu- it's a big deal. Lots of people. Oh, yeah. That. We've been there several times, uh, you know, in the past. I've been for a few years, but it's really neat. Lots of really informational, uh, you know, vendors and stuff there. Lots of smiling faces and fiddle music everywhere you go. So, <laughs> yes, all kinds of all kinds of crazy plants everywhere. It's really fun, and so it'll be. It's, I'm really excited to be presenting there. It'd be really cool. Well, this year I think I'm gonna go. I haven't gone before, but it was between the Tulip Festival or that. But I actually think it's on Mother's Day. For some for some reason, I'm pretty sure it's on Mother's Day because I was looking, it is. It and is. and so if anybody's going to be traveling in for that for the Baker Creek, um, if you're able to make any time for it, um, I encourage everyone to go to the Laura Ingalls Museum that's also there because that's awesome as well. We've kind of talked about that in our Stark Bros interview about uh, the Ben Davis Apple and all that stuff. So anybody right. listening, if you can get into the area definitely pop in. I will not be um, speaking at the Ozarks Homesteading Expo this year. I was able to speak last year on rabbits. Um, and then this year, I believe she has uh, Living Traditions back to be doing that. Um, I will be at the Indiana Homesteading Conference this year in October, speaking on uh permaculture, fodder, fodder trees for your livestock, um, and kind of moving away from the commercial feed zone. So I'm pretty excited about that. So that's October 21st and 22nd. Uh, Tickets are on sale for anybody listening. They're on sale for the Ozarks Homesteading Expo. Currently now, it's the last weekend of August. It is a good time. 
Um, she really puts a lot of work into that. And then there's an awesome time. And that is in Marshville, Missouri. And then uh, tickets are on sale online at the IndianaHomesteadingConference.com. And they're in their second year and they're doing awesome stuff there too. Uh, Joel Salatin will be at both events. So he's a busy man. I don't know how he gets to, he does like a million events. I don't, I don't, I can't even imagine thinking about doing his schedule. (laughs) So I can't, I'm excited to see Joel uh, speak. I, I of course read a few of his books. He was a huge inspiration to me when I first got into homesteading and kind of figuring out, you know, maybe I'm, not living life the way that is best for me. I, I need to figure out something else. So he was a big influence on me, uh, you know, 15 years ago when I started thinking about homesteading. So I'm really excited about that. Yeah. And uh, other things also, if people are interested, uh, they can go to our website to the events page. And I usually try to uh, put all our upcoming events on there as we, as we book them. So that's a great way to see other mushroom learning opportunities that are coming up. And we have quite a few things on there right now. Uh, also I encourage people if they want to learn more about mushrooms, uh, a great way to do that a very low cost and effective way is to join the Missouri Mycological Society. Uh, it's a nonprofit society and membership is only $20 for an entire family for a year. You get access to members only events such as the upcoming Morel Madness event. That's just in a few weeks. That was my next um, question for you. <laughs> Let's yeah, talk so about that. There's a huge, uh, calendar also on the, uh, Missouri Mycological Society website, which is momyco.org. If you go there and go to calendar, you can see all of the forays that are lined up. And we have multiple forays almost every single weekend through the season. So those forays are free. Uh, Most of them are open to non-members as well. So that calendar is a really valuable resource to go. If you're interested in learning about mushrooms, there's no better way to do it, wild mushrooms, than going into the woods with an expert and seeing them firsthand and learning about their interactions with the environment and stuff right in the woods. There's nothing better than that. You can really uh, cut the learning curve on mushrooms by joining a mycological society and attending events. So I highly recommend that. And I mentioned Morel Madness. This is uh, one of the members only events. There are four or five of them a year where we like to really have a nice uh, fun event for members only. So it's a nice perk of being a member. And it's basically all weekend. It's going to be held uh, in Osceola, Missouri, at the H. Rowe Bartle Boy Scout Camp. So this is really cool because you can't just go to the Boy Scout Camp and hunt mushrooms. There. No. Like, they don't let you do that. It's 4,200 acres at this place on Stockton Lake, I believe it's called. So there are caves all around, all kinds of ravines and hills and hollers to roam around. Plenty of room for everyone. And last year we had it there. I wasn't there, but they found a lot of morels. So we're hoping that happens again this year. Uh, people can go to momyco.org and find the Morel Madness link and go sign up. You have to be a member again, uh, but it's only 20 bucks. Well, I think that there's just, for everybody listening, there's no way that in this podcast we could possibly discuss all of the the mushrooms that even grow in our region, let alone everywhere. Um, and, and have the has anybody actually figured out like a scientist or something, how many mushrooms there are? Uh, no, actually mushrooms are kind of unique in, uh, classifying them. So taxonomy is kind of the science of classifying organisms and, you know, scientific names of birds and plants. 
everybody's kind of familiar with that concept. Well, mushrooms are kind of like the, the new frontier of uh, taxonomy and, and studies like that because they're always changing. We're learning new things about fungi all the time. We have to change their names because we find new relationships. Uh, so it's hard to say exactly how many species there are because everything is uh, fluctuating so much right now. But the estimates are eight to 12,000 uh, species of macro fungi in North America, which would be fungus that, that make mushrooms. So that's a, a decent estimate for the fleshy fungi. Now, if you start to consider all of the microscopic fungi, like there's a, a class of fungi called endophytes that live inside the cells of plants. <laughs> uh, if you include all the fungi like that, then there are well over a million species of uh, fungi on the planet. That's just insane. A lot of mushrooms <laughs> in the world, and uh, there are way fewer plants than fungi. Um, so yeah, very interesting kingdom filling all niches of life, doing all kinds of amazing things. And you're right, we could never cover all the mushrooms uh, <laughs> that are out there in one you know, in an hour or even two or three hour episode uh, in Missouri, it's estimated that we probably we have at least 5000 species and probably more like seven or 8000 Missouri alone. So Missouri um, has put out and I and I had the list um, in front of me for our talk was the puffballs, shaggy mane, coral fungi, morels. Chanterelles, bearded tooth, oyster mushrooms, bolets, chicken of the woods, hen of the woods, as are um, edible mushrooms. Is that right. all the edible mushrooms here in Missouri? Oh, no, certainly not. Nope. Those are just the easy to identify ones. Uh, mm. A lot of times, you know, when you're reading a pamphlet or something like that, then it just kind of gives you the most basic info. But no, there are dozens of edible mushrooms in Missouri um, and not very many poisonous ones. So there's a lot of fear about fungi. And I always try to, to preach respect, not fear, because yes, there are dangerous fungi, but most of them are not dangerous. So there's no need to be afraid of them all. Uh, and a lot of people are, we call it mycophobia. And we live in a very mycophobic culture that is turning around because of the shroom boom, which is really great. So uh, out of the seven or 8,000, maybe 10 or 12,000 species in North America, only one to 2% of those mushrooms are poisonous or toxic, uh, which is a really low amount. And most people are shocked when they hear that number. Uh, Cause a lot of people think, well, most of the mushrooms are poisonous. You really got to know your stuff to know which ones you can eat. And that is important to know your stuff before eating a mushroom, but only one to 2% are toxic and only about 20 or 30 species in North America are deadly poisonous. Um, and that's out of, like I said, 10, 10, 12,000, something like that. So respect, not fear. That's what I always say. Which, and I think even in that list, they only had five listed that were poisonous. Yeah, uh, yeah if you avoid uh, the Amanita genus, so if you learn about Amanita mushrooms, most of the deadly poisonous mushrooms that we have uh, in the Midwest are in that, that genus, Amanita. So if you just learn the features of that genus, like the cup-like structure at the base of the stem called a vulva. They generally have a ring on the stem of the toxic ones uh, and a couple other things they could learn. But if you focus in on those amanitas and don't eat any of those, you're pretty safe. There's another uh, deadly poisonous mushroom called the deadly gallerina, and it grows on rotten logs, usually in troops. 
and it's in a group that we call LBMs, little brown mushrooms. And a lot of those little brown mushrooms are toxic, some of them deadly toxic. So the rules are usually don't eat Amanitas, don't eat little brown mushrooms, and you're probably not going to die. Good. (laughs) You could still still eat a toxic mushroom that will make you sick, and it's good to learn those as well. Mushrooms like the green spored parasol, which is a very common large mushroom that grows right in the summertime, usually in people's lawns. Uh, And it is, I believe it is still the number one cause of mushroom poisonings in North America because people like to eat that mushroom. It's somewhat alluring because it pops up in the grass. It doesn't smell bad. It tastes good. Uh, So it makes people sick. It's one of its common names is the vomiter. So you don't want to eat that one. No. Uh... And also I should say, I don't want people to just get all happy-go-lucky and start eating all the mushrooms. There are definitely <laughs> rules. Only eat a mushroom if you're 100% sure of its identification. And if you're a beginner at IDing mushrooms, the only way to be 100% sure is to get input from an expert, I would say. And compare several resources, not just one website or one book that you have. Um, Which is so that's, that's a very important rule. It went in doubt, throw it out. It's not worth eating a poisonous mushroom. Some mushrooms that grow in our area, such as some of the Amanita species and the deadly gallerina, they can cause liver failure, kidney failure, death. Uh, if you eat a toxic a toxic amount of the destroying angel mushroom, Amanita bisporigera, um, your chance of survival is about 50%. So not very good. No, but that is a service that you also offer, right, for ID? Oh, yeah, I'm always happy to ID mushrooms for people. I don't usually uh, recommend that they eat them, but I'll sure send them in the right path so they can make that decision on their own. Well, there's so there's so much to learn. So everybody listening, um, do not hesitate. Snag a grow kit. Find, join um, your... I mean, if you're not from our area, um, you know... There are people that are experts in mushrooms, I'm sure, all over. So Yeah, every, every state has a mycological society. So, yeah. yeah, that's a good point. Don't just join the Missouri Mycological Society. Join whichever one is in your area. And when you're uh, wanting to get all your benefits before you kick on your dehydrator, just because Pinterest and Instagram tell you, make sure you cook them first. <laughs> <laughs> that that was my big takeaway there. Um, and I'm really excited to um, inoculate some logs. I hope everyone will do it with me. And um, we'll upload some progress pictures on the uh, social media. So then hopefully you'll be able to, to see how it's going. Because we've got all these, these oak out here. Um, before we go... Oh, go ahead. A couple other recommendations. A local source for uh, mushroom grow kits is a friend of ours, Taylor's Mushrooms. He's out of St. James, Missouri, and he offers grow kits. You can buy them online, or if you're in the area, he sells them at the Rolla Farmer's Market. So if you're local, that's a great way uh, to get you some grow kits. He does have Lion's Mane and lots of other great ones. Oh, wow. Um, So that's one thing I thought to throw in there. And I will include um, the link and information as well in the description, as well as in the group and all those things for... Well, another another good link to tell people and resource for mushroom cultivation is Field and Forest Products. Uh, they're a smaller company out of Wisconsin, and we get all of our spawn from them. They also sell all the cultivation tools and supplies that you need. 
So I recommend people going to their website. They're really nice people, really, really helpful. If you have questions about anything, I've spent hours on the phone with their, their people, you know, answering questions, asking things that maybe no one has ever even asked before and they still help me. So definitely recommend Field and Forest. I will include that as well. Uh, before we go, I would say um, a couple of things. One, thank you for your time. And thanks for having me on. Yes, I really appreciate it. And um, the next thing that I would say would be what is your, uh, and this is a special question for my neighbor. <laughs> what is your um, opinion, tips, information, anything you have on the puffball? Puffball, okay, yeah. The, so the puffballs are great. We love puffballs because they're so easy to identify. They're a great beginner mushroom. There aren't any deadly poisonous lookalikes. There are a couple that you could possibly mistake for them that could make you sick, but it's just not likely if you follow a couple of rules. So puffballs are basically ball-shaped mushrooms that grow on the ground. There is one species, a smaller species that grows on wood, but most of them grow on the ground, especially the larger ones. Uh, we have several species here in Missouri. They're all edible. So a puffball, if you take a puffball, you find a, a ball-shaped mushroom in your yard or in the woods. You pick the mushroom, and when you cut it in half, you just cut it directly in half. As long as it is bright white on the inside, then it is a safe-to-eat puffball. So very simple rule for puffballs. Pick it, cut it in half. If it's all white inside, it's okay to eat it. And so is that one that you would just kind of toss into anything? <laughs> no. So puffballs have a very unique texture and a somewhat unique flavor, a pretty mild flavor. So they, they do a lot of soaking up whatever you, you do with them. So a lot of people will marinate them and then fry them, similar to you would do a piece of tofu. If you've ever fried tofu, you would marinate it in like a soy sauce marinade, then batter it and fry it. It's fried tofu. So if you do that with a puffball, cut it into chunks and, and do that process, soaking it in marinade and then frying it, it's extremely tasty. You can also just fry them and batter them and fry them like you would uh, another, you know, any other mushroom without marinating them. Uh, people do all kinds of different things with them, though. I like to I get the medium-sized ones and slice them into slabs and then bread them and fry them. And then I put those slabs in a baking dish and add, um, I, cook, I saute up some red onions and red peppers, put seasonings in there, and then add a bunch of Parmesan and bake it, and it makes a puffball Parmesan. So that's something I always like to recommend people um, that's a really nice recipe and a really inventive way to use it. I feel we got that recipe from Maxine Stone's book, Missouri's Wild Mushrooms. So when you just said that, that, that just, um, made me remember this whole time. My husband's been saying he doesn't like mushrooms, but then I realized he eats those breaded fried mushrooms. Oh, okay. At yeah. the, he likes mushrooms then at the, at the restaurants. When we moved down here, that like was a thing, you know, like fried green beans, right. fried mushrooms, everything. And so sure. he's eating those. So uh -huh. what, what is that mushroom then? The mushroom that you get in the store is generally called agaricus bisporus. And it is uh, just the common button mushroom. And there's lots of different agaricus. You can find wild ones that are pretty delicious. But yeah, that's just the common button mushroom, we call it. 
So he's just dramatic. <laughs> yeah, you know what I would do is find, I would fry another type of mushroom and I bet he'll like it too. And then I just won't tell him. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's what it'll be. I think uh, the only other uh, mushroom that kept kept coming up all the time was the portobello. Yeah, portobellos are actually the same species as the regular button mushrooms that you buy in the store, you know, the pizza mushroom. Uh, same species, they just let them grow bigger. Uh, sometimes it'll be a different strain, you know, that get a little bigger. They let them get really mature and the cap flattened out. So when you get button mushrooms, they're called that because the immature stage of a mushroom is called a button. And it's when the cap is still uh, curved under and it still has the ring on a stem is still attached covering the gills on the underside so a portobello <laughs> when you buy that it's just one of those little mushrooms that got really big and they allowed it to have its full life cycle and portobellos are not a mushroom you would want to grow uh, on your own oh well that's all, good all, to the, know. Uh, all of the agaricus mushrooms are, are more complicated to grow on a, a small scale which and it sounds like there's just so many other there's just so many kinds Oh, that yeah, we just we have to branch away from you can grow oyster mushrooms and shiitakes so easily and both of those are miles better than any portobello or, or any other agaricus in my opinion yeah well knowing now what what i know and wanting to do all this i i want to stray away from the grocery store mushrooms there's just so many other kinds to try and yeah i don't even eat grocery store mushrooms anymore well i bet not <laughs> Kind of like the tomato you mentioned yep. earlier. Yeah, the, it, it, or like cucumbers and all that. It's just not the same. It's just not the same. So, but I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Um, I I went over time. I apologize, but there was just, no, there's fine. a lot. I well, Literally. Mushrooms is my favorite thing, so it's all good. Yes, and hopefully everybody will go and sit in on your talk. And um, sneak peek for everyone. Uh last year they brought a lot of things so you could see like the visual like for the logs and things so do you know if you'll be doing that um yeah, this year question. so we're actually i think we're going to be there both days this year i'm going to do a, a talk a presentation about mushrooms and then we're also going to set up a booth uh with logs and people can just come up and inoculate a log and take it home with them so that'll be really fun do not miss that, everyone. And you got to yeah, grab your supplies last. So last year we sold out of them really fast. We're going to bring more this year, but you never know. They might go quick. Yes. And they will not be selling tickets to the Ozarks Homesteading Expo at the gate this year. That is a new thing. You have yeah, to get good, them good online. Yeah. Good idea mentioning that. Yes. You have to get them online. And both days are on the same ticket this year. So she had, if she had to change things, uh, she just had to because of the way that it is. So definitely get on there and snag, snag those tickets. I got to get my own tickets. I still don't have tickets either. But so on that note, everybody, let's learn, let's grow, let's go.